Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I want to begin today by putting you in a scenario, Ben. Okay. Yeah, you're in a you're in a big fever dream. All right. And you in the recess. Uh, you're at recess in the playground in mm. in year four. You've just been given out in handball, oh. even though you weren't out. Like you know, you know it was lines, but the whole the whole court are saying you fooled it because they want to get in and have a go before the bell goes. Eleven forty five. The bell goes, and you got to go back to class. And so you go into your year four class. I think Mr. Fisher, was he your year four Mr. teacher? Mr. Fisher was my year four Why teacher. Why do I know that? Yeah. And Mr. Fisher says to you, all right, Ben, it's your turn to give your speech on the first fleet. Oh. What are you talking about? You're in the dream. You're back in year four. You've got to give your speech. So it's impromptu, right? <laughs> well, 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 impromptu for you, but. <laughs> what am I talking about? Well, uh, I know. I'm going to take it right back to the start. I'm going to talk. So I think there's there's some key figures in terms of we got Captain Cook. Yep. Um. We got Arthur Phillip, so um, but a personal favourite of mine, the boy Dirk Hartog. <laughs> I think he, um, yeah, I, I think, uh, what was it? Because I remember bringing, like, Dirk Hartog for some reason is a name that's burned into my brain, but when I first brought it up to you, you were astounded that I'd, that I'd remembered such a niche figure of Australian history. I feel like I've heard you reference it once or twice before. Yeah. And like, I've, I've always been, like, that's, he's, he's niche because... He is like sandwiched in the middle of the people who encountered Australia. He wasn't the first Dutch person to encounter New Holland. Really? No. Who was? Well, we'll cover that. Okay. Wow. How exciting. Um, so he's kind of, yeah, like a, a, I don't know, like a third generation. So he was another Dutch person that came in and was like, mm, nah. Yeah, pretty much. Just, <laughs> yeah, right. And he, so the fact that he's burning your memory. <laughs> well, I, don't, I think he was, when we did it in year three or something, I think he was like, the first European that they would talk about as as discovering Australia. Ah, that's so. well, Mr. Fisher is, has misled you. <laughs> well, no, no, oh no, I, I think that might have been year three. So I don't slander a good man. <laughs> yeah, wow. Okay, well, I'm I'm excited to learn. <laughs> <laughs> so your strategy in your dream is just dependent on all everything on Dirk Hartog your entire speech. No, no, no. So I, I'm saying I I start from the start. I talk Dirk Hartog landed in 1606. Um, 
and then decided Australia wasn't for him. And so he left. But it wasn't 1606. That that was the other guy. The real first guy was 1606. When was Dirk Hartog? Dirk Hartog was 1616. Oh, that's a real shame. So I, I clearly in my dream, I've just conflated all these <laughs> Dutch guys into just one singularity. Um, and then Rude Van story comes in. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, um, it sounds like Mr. Fisher would have just cut me off right there. Uh, although, just- <laughs> although, what do you know? Like, that's the thing. Because, like, again, like I think back to being taught about the first fleet, price teachers have to be such generalists that I wonder mm. the extent of where their knowledge cuts off and I don't mean that as a slide on primary school teachers I just mean it as like anyone in that situation when you have to teach that many different subjects can't afford to have an extreme depth doesn't have the time to mm. give a, a yeah. depth and so I'm like how much did my teachers actually know about about the first slate I want to begin in BC times wow yeah, yeah way back I want to begin with Aristotle okay <laughs> like any good podcast <laughs> <laughs> It's really a throwback to Plato's cave. Um, they didn't teach about Aristotle and Australia in school. I didn't know there was a link. So yes, yeah. there, is, there, absolutely, there absolutely is. So Aristotle was a scientist philosopher. Again, he was kind of the primary school teacher of ancient Greece. He kind of wore a lot of different hats. <laughs> Imagine... <laughs> Tell that to Aristotle <laughs> Hailed as like one of the great thinkers And he's just like the primary school teacher of BC times <laughs> He was a great primary school teacher Adam. I mean technically I think he would have taught primary school aged children as well Like he was a teacher mm-hmm. So um, But Aristotle came up with a theory Or this concept called Antipodes Antipodes it was an ancient Greek word for southern land and The theory went mm-hmm. like this If because a lot of there was a lot of, of landmass in the north northern hemisphere. Yep. But they didn't know what was in the southern hemisphere. Theoretically, to counteract the existence of a huge landmass in the north being Russia, the Arctic, and northern Europe, there had to be an equivalent landmass in the south to counterbalance it. To counterbalance the Earth. Yes. Now, now, hold up, hold up. Ben is, ben is a mathematician by trade. Before you throw some shade on ancient... I mean, yeah. He didn't have the, the sort of means and technology that we have today. I'll give him that. Um, but that was... Aristotle, they were... They thought the Earth was round at that point, did they? Or did they think... I believe I'm not mistaken. I think it was... Still I like thought a, they think it, think, I think they thought it was a dome. Like a dome. That was the okay, real... Okay, so it was still like the... Dome Earth's and Earth's center of the universe. I, be- thing. I yep. believe. Oh, yeah. Well, it would have to be because uh, a century later, a guy called Aristosthenes, uh-huh. he did a bit of 2 pi r in the world mm. and he successfully calculated the circumference of the world. Yeah. And if you're going to calculate the circumference, you need to know the radius and how do you find the radius of the, of the world? A uh, trundle wheel. <laughs> <laughs> or just like, I don't know, knowledge of how deep the earth gets to an extent. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. That would be, that would be my, my, my theory. Mm. Do you ever, Ben, like I said, Ben is a mathematician. Did you ever look at Aristosthenes no, in your time no, studying? No. Like how he calculated the, no. Okay. No, he didn't. Because that, that, that's a very impressive feat for someone in BC times. Oh, big time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do the circumference of the world. I think that's like, given the technology that's available, that's like splitting the atom levels of like scientific yeah. revolution. Yeah. So, but the, the issue was when Aristotle's calculated the circumference of the world, the known world only made up one quarter of that circumference. Mm. And so that's a bit of a red pill moment for the ancient Greeks. Yeah. And of them being like, or, and then indeed the Romans that came later. 
of them being like, whoa, like we're not in Kansas anymore. Like this, yeah, this is yeah. a, this is a big wide world. And again, like you got to think that their knowledge, they obviously they knew Africa existed. You've got interaction between like the, the Hebrews and the Egyptians, yeah, going way back to mm. the time of Moses, but they didn't know how far Africa went South. Yeah. And again, because you've got the Congo river, which was considered pretty unpassable and that sort of thing. So a, a lot of it is really unknown to the outside world. And again, it takes until the 1400s to realize that the Americas actually exist as a, and you can't just get to, to Asia by going the other way. Mm. And so it was kind of theorized at the time. A guy called Ptolemy then came after Aristosthenes. Yeah, yeah. I've heard of Ptolemy before. Yeah. Um, I think he appears in one of, or like he's mentioned in, in an Assassin's Creed game. I think that's how I, that's, that is, <laughs> that's will not be the that. last Assassin's Creed <laughs> reference for today. So Ptolemy mapped, he created a map of the world and he came up with this idea called Terra Australis. Yeah. Great Southern land or land of the South is what it translates as. Yeah. So Terra, land, Australis, South. So In what language? Latin. Nice. So Terra Australis, it's this idea that that basically, again, there's this huge Southern land mass to counteract the known land of the North and... What happens is Ptolemy's map gets lost as we go into the Dark Ages. Mm. So the Dark Ages, again, there's nuance to the Dark Ages. I feel like every history podcast is going, you know, the Dark Ages actually weren't that dark. They're all these things. But by and large, there was a huge loss in science and there was a huge loss in academia. There are certainly other gains that were made. And you've got your great thinkers of the time, like Thomas Aquinas. And there's plenty of others that you could point to to show that science didn't die at all in the Dark Ages but they did actually lose a lot of the key sources from the ancient world. And so Ptolemy's map was lost mm. until in the 1300s, 1400s, we see the birth of Renaissance humanism. Very different to secular humanism today, which is basically that, um, again, humans can kind of effectively advance through kind of scientific triumph. Renaissance humanism is a little bit different in that there was an emphasis on going back to the classical sources in that a lot of human nature could be discovered by returning to your ancient greats like Homer's Iliad. Okay, yeah. That's what Renaissance humanism is about. And so in that, as they go back to Renaissance humanism, they rediscover Ptolemy's map. The 1400s also happens to coincide with these big European empires expanding across the world. And Mm -hmm. we've got, obviously, Columbus at the end of the 1400s. And by the 1500s, we've got Portugal, Spain, the Netherlands, Britain, and France all traveling the world looking for places to effectively colonize and trade with. So you put two and two together, you've got the rediscovery of Terra Australis and you've got the expansion across the world. And so to it, you have a quest for Terra Australis. Mm, I like it. Yeah. Really set up the narrative well there. Again, plot for a great Assassin's Creed game. I would throw in. Play as Dirk (laughs) (laughs) Now. Yeah. We are going to use some visuals today. Uh, you can find all of these visuals on the main channel. I made a video about it earlier this week where you can kind of look at the maps. Firstly, we go to the end of the... We kind of just go back in time for a very brief period. We go to the end of the 13th century. We've got Marco Polo. Marco Polo, I'm just showing Ben here. He effectively m- maps from Eastern Europe all the way through to as far Eastern Asia. So the Eastern uh, border of China. Um, the eastern yeah. coast of China, I should say. He gets all the way to the eastern coast of China, comes back through Indonesia and the Philippines, 
and through Persia. And he kind of charts a lot of Asia. And he's one of the first European explorers to get that deep into Asia. While Marco Polo was in Indonesia... Sorry, side note, like, how did we get from Marco Polo being such a great man to nothing more than a swimming pool game? I, like, <laughs> like, where did things go so wrong for, <laughs> for Marco? <laughs> I feel like any, any great person of history will eventually be reduced to a meme or a game yeah. over time. Doesn't, yeah, doesn't matter what yeah. you... Like, Napoleon's, what, an ice cream... Wait, what? <laughs> Isn't Neapolitan after Napoleon? <laughs> it could be. I don't, I don't know. Because, <laughs> like, you've got, obviously, it's like Neapolitan is from Naples. Is there any link between Naples and Napoleon? Or would, Na- no, Naples would outdate Napoleon, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? The city. Now, nah, scrap that. Maybe Neapolitan has nothing to do with Napoleon. <laughs> the more I think through the logic, it's not sound logic at all. I'll play it again yeah. with Julius Caesar afterwards, yeah. though. <laughs> Yeah, like, why did Julius Caesar get a salad, you know, after all, <laughs> yeah, after, oh, true, true, yeah, after yeah. all he did? A, sm- like, a Smith's Chips flavour for winning the competition for <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. the best in 2009. Yeah, that was a stitch up for, like, nine-year-old me. Like, why on earth would a salad win the best chip flavour? Do you remember what you voted for? I don't know if I voted. I think uh, I, non-compulsory voting, you know. <laughs> <laughs> didn't have time. I voted for late-night kebabs. I had to go work, yeah. That was, that was <laughs> With you having no concept of... What a late night kebab actually is as well. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, an 8pm kebab. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know. Do you reckon Marco would be pleased with how he's, with how he's been remembered? I mean, if you, if you get remembered nearly a thousand years later, you've done pretty well in I any sense. So. Like yeah. you're in the 0.0001% of people that are remembered by everyone, yeah, not right. just, not just history fans, by everyone a thousand years down the track. I reckon he's done pretty well. It is a good point. Yeah. I think if, if you offered me swimming pool game, I'd take it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, so when Harold Holt is played yeah. years down the track. <laughs> Harold Holt. <laughs> we are. Yeah, we know he's done well. Chinese submarine out of water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fish out of water. Anyway, Marco Polo, he, when he's in Indonesia, he hears the Indonesians talk about this thing called Java La Grande, meaning okay. big Java, which is not the same as the island Java. So Java at the time was called Java Major. Wait, so where's the island Java, sorry? Indonesia. Indonesia, yep. Okay. So that's where Jakarta is. Yep. So when they're when he's in Indonesia, I believe it was on the island of Sumatra, they talk about this idea called Java La Grande, which is different to Java Major. To get to Java La Grande, you have to go a fair way south of Java Major. Um, and basically the kind of theory at the time was that, yeah, it's 1,300 miles south, the largest island in the world, and a pathway into Terra Australis. And he kind of goes back to oh, Europe yeah. and he writes about this thing called Java La Grande. So the image I was just seeing then, that was Java. No, that was East Timor. Oh, okay. So <laughs> the Portuguese colonized East Timor. Well, they say didn't colonize it immediately, but they made contact with East Timor in 1515. Yep. That is just north of oh, Australia. Yeah, they, they got close. Yeah. So the, the Portuguese. Could you imagine if we were... We were cheering on Ronaldo. <laughs> well, I think Ronaldo actually, I think he, there's like a backwards path that he's eligible to play for Australia. I remember it being a news oh, like story. A, yeah, like a, a grandparent or something. Yeah. yeah. I do remember that being a news story. Yeah. Because um, we always talk about Christian Vieri potentially playing for Australia because he grew up in Australia. Okay. But yeah. Ronaldo, I believe, also might have been eligible. Can <laughs> you imagine the scenes? But so. basically, the Portuguese, they, they're in East Timor. And they kind of document 
what this Javala Grande would look like. So they kind of hear about Marco Polo speaking about Javala Grande. They get to East Timor. They interview people about Javala Grande. They relay that information back to France and in um, the French school called the Dieppe School, they make the Dieppe maps and they come up with a map for what they believe Javala Grande would look like based off of descriptions given by the Javans and by people in East Timor and around the Dutch East Indies. Okay. This is what they came up with. So Javala Grande, sorry to clarify, is the pathway to Terra Australis. That like was the that, big island that they think is like close to. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. And so that right there on the screen is Java La Grande, allegedly. A couple, wow. of, couple of things we can kind of see on this map here. Again, obviously I know for everyone listening at home, you can't see it in front of you. So we're going to try and commentate as much as possible on it. All of these maps are accessible on the main video, or sorry, on the video on the main channel. To the bottom of the screen. So this is. Uh, What's the video called? Sorry for the. Uh, what is it called? The Untold Scramble for Australia. Yep. This, the compass on this map is facing south. So oh, yep, you're yep. looking at this upside down. Okay. So basically we have, remember this is upside down. If we flip it the other way, it would look the other way. What does this look like to you? Oh, like the, the top of Queensland. Is that what I'm saying? That is one theory. Yeah. Yeah. That is actually the theory that I think is most plausible. A couple of other theories. One other theory is that this is the whole coastline of the eastern coast of Australia. And you see that little key looking thing at the top of the screen? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some people have theorized that that's Botany Bay. Wow. I don't, I don't buy it. I mean, you're looking at... I cross the Georges River quite frequently. That does not look like the Georges River to me. Yeah. Also, what would that island in the middle of Botany Bay be? I don't know. There's no island in the middle of Botany yeah. Bay. Alcatraz. <laughs> but also at the same time, this is based off of word of mouth. And yeah, wow. It's it's an incredible, like the DFA, like the cartographers in the DFA school were phenomenal at what they did. And so they've pulled this together just based on like testimony from people who live on Java La Grande. And the people who live on Java Major and all and around the Dutch East Indies that speak of Java La Grande. And, we, and we, have they been to Java or are they just speculating? Well, that's the thing. It's like we can't find like a, a person that's been there. We, we know we're pretty confident that Indonesians, people from New Guinea and people from Northern Australia all had contact with each other. Yeah. That much. We, yeah. We've always been pretty confident of that. So if it is the eastern coast of Australia, which some people don't believe, I think it probably is. Mm. If it is the eastern coast of Australia... That's come from all that contact that's happened between New Guinea, Indonesia and the Northern Indigenous Australians that have basically led to this being a testimonial map given about Javala Grande. Right. So the vision here is that they thought that Javala Grande was the gateway to this southern land, but it actually just was part of that southern land. That's kind of the... Yeah. Well, the Europeans thought... Like the Indonesians didn't have any concept of Terra Australis or whatever. Yeah. But the Europeans believed that this would be the pathway... To the great southern land. Yeah. To Terra Australis. Yeah. Now, again, if the Portuguese never sailed through the Bass Strait and never reached as far south as Tasmania. Did they really? They sailed through? No, but they didn't. But if they did, like, because they didn't, they wouldn't, they would have every reason to suspect that a place like this would lead to the southern land. Yeah. Which had just become accepted knowledge by this point. No one really challenged the idea of Terra Australis. Mm. It was just accepted. Yeah. that, That checks out. It. Terra Australis must be real. And so looking at this map, they were like, yeah, this is the pathway to Terra Australis. 
I'm with you. I think looking at this map, it looks a lot more like Queensland. And some people have kind of speculated that you've got Fraser Island off the coast there as well, near Brisbane. You have kind of like crocodiles by the looks of it on the on the map as well. So mm. there's some, it's definitely kind of a tropical sort of area. And the question we need to ask ourselves is the DFA maps were very good. These were not just fan fiction scrolls or whatever. Yeah. These were extremely good maps, particularly given the context. If this isn't Java La Grande, what on earth is this actually? Mm. And we don't know whether it was the Portuguese or the Dutch who first made contact with Australia from Europe's point of view. Interesting. Could have been the Portuguese. Yeah. Any knowledge of that was unfortunately lost in 1755, an Assassin's Creed level. Did you Have you played the Lisbon Earthquake level in Assassin's Creed? Oh, what game's that in? I don't know. I, I've never played Assassin's Creed. I just know, I just, I do know it's a level because I used footage. Actually, I've got it in the video. I used footage in the video of that level. It looks like PS3 era. Yeah, it was the one that I thought it was. So there is one level where you like... The, so it's in Assassin's Creed Rogue um, and you... Essentially, you caused the Lisbon earthquake. Like, oh, really? Yeah, like because of like the little. There's like an artifact or something under the ground that you then like pull out of its. Oh its like, yes. You know Absolutely. how like Assassin's Creed's got like the, the kind of the mystical kind of stuff going on. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, there there actually is a very cool level where you like run through it and everything's falling around. Everything's yeah, yeah, shaking. Um. We, on that note, this episode was brought to you by <laughs> Ubisoft. Well, we one time we were in Florence one time, and we yeah. were we were pushing. We were had to walk about. We had to walk about an hour's walk to get to a train station to catch a train that we couldn't miss back to Milan. So we it was an hour long walk. We were coming out of a Fiorentina game, so there was a crowd which slowed the walk down, particularly as we had to cross a bridge, mm. which kind of created a huge bottleneck. We were not. <laughs> going to miss the Assassin's Creed landmarks while we were very briefly in Florence that Ben <laughs> so so keen on seeing. So we converted an hour-long walk into a huge detour that saw the Assassin's Creed landmarks and we still made the train in time. I felt like I was on Assassin's Creed that day when yeah, we were yeah, just oh, yeah. pumping through the city. Yeah. <laughs> like just disappear into crowds, you know. <laughs> like someone's like, where's Ben? Like, PY would hand us his phone and be like, just I need a photo. And yeah. like without any, speaking of, PY does have COVID today. We haven't yeah. actually addressed that. Yeah, I know we should have. He's stayed home and protected the NHS. <laughs> um, so mad respect to PY. Um, but yeah, we, we the three of us have done a, a, a Assassin's Creed pilgrimage, so to speak. Yeah, through, yeah, we have. Through Florence. I love Florence. It's a great place. Did really bring me back to 14-year-old me or something. Just run through, <laughs> run through the streets. Wow. I thought you were going to say the 1400s as well, but yeah. No. no, no. Um, <laughs> but yes. So the Lisbon earthquake, basically like oh, so much of the city was destroyed and so to it kind of any artifacts that would indicate whether or not the Portuguese actually did make contact with Australia. So all that remains is that it's a theory. Yeah. Some. Maybe it was instigated by the Dutch to because uh, they were about to. Dirk Hartog went and just <laughs> caused the Lisbon earthquake. <laughs> just to rewrite the narrative. Again, great Assassin's, great Assassin's Creed game. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, so we don't know if the Portuguese are there. I'm, I'm inclined to believe that they were. I think 
I think it's likely, particularly if they got to East Timor, mm. all you got to do is just sail across the Torres Strait and you're in Northern Australia. But the first official account of European contact with Australia. Wait, don't tell me. So this is the 1606? This is the 1606. It's not, is it Van Diemen? Is, is no. It but is it Van? Does it have a Van in it? No. Damn. I really thought I had that. Yeah, Van... Yeah, Van Diemen was a person. For, so Van Diemen was a person for the Dutch East Indies. Um, so he kind of ran the Dutch East Indies. Right. And so basically like his boy Abel Tasman named Tasmania after Van Diemen. And then everyone else is like, no, 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 no. Mad respect, mad respect. You get Tasmania. <laughs> <laughs> Abel Tasman's like, oh, no. Oh, this totally backfired. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is embarrassing, isn't it? <laughs> um, so... Day 1606, there's a guy called William Janssen. Not Van, but Jan. So close. Um, okay. So William Janssen. I actually, yeah, don't know if I've really heard that name. No one, no one really knows him. Yeah. Like it's spelled J-A-N-S-Z-O-O-N. Yeah, wow. Yeah, he really sounds like a like a, a Dutch regen on FIFA or whatever. Yeah. Like he <laughs> he sounds made up. He, he doesn't wants to come and ask me for playing time in the Champions League final. <laughs> hey, Gaffer, nearly. So, William Janssen, he leaves the Dutch East Indies and he sails to the south of New Guinea. As okay. he sails to the south of New Guinea, he actually crosses the Torres Strait and ends up in Cape York in northern Queensland. Wow. He still believes he's in New Guinea, though. So, he believes that this is, a, rather than it being a strait, he thinks it's a bay. Mm. And he thinks that the bay comes to a close and that he's, so he's still convinced that he's in New Guinea. He then sails down the left side of the north coast of Queensland. So if it's yeah, a horn. Towards like Darwin and stuff. Yeah. Yep. Or I guess the west side to be, right, depending <laughs> what way you're facing. West side. <laughs> so he sails down and basically can't, he's like, oh, do we, do we pull up here? Do we pull up there? He eventually pulls up in land that was controlled by the Wikmungan people. So indigenous Northern Australians. Yep. And basically we've got two different accounts of what happened. We've got indigenous oral tradition and we've got Janssen's documentation. Before we go dismissing oral tradition, it is really important to note that like in ancient Jewish culture, that cultures that have, that don't have writing, uh, or sorry, that don't have yet what we would call European writing, obviously there's, still rock paintings and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Yep. But what we would call European, European style writing, cultures that rely on oral tradition because they're reliant on it, do it really well. Mm. And so like before we go saying, oh, well, oral tradition as Chinese whispers over 500 years in those cultures, no, not really. But, and same thing goes for like say ancient Jewish culture. The reason why a lot of the Hebrew Bible was passed down fairly intact was because people literally committed the entire Old Testament to memory. Mm. And again, they don't have phones or whatever that do all the memory storage for them. So they use their memories constantly and their memories are significantly better than ours in preserving uh, testimony. So we have, we have oral tradition that has been passed down from the Wikmungan people about this first encounter. We have Janssen's diaries. They're contradictory in the sense that Janssen has this clear European view of they're barbarians and they kind of just started killing our men. And he was like, the thing that he was most offended by wasn't that they would kill Dutch people. Cause he's like, that kind of comes with the territory. It's that they didn't want to trade. And that was his big thing was that he was like, we like, Wait, come on, give me your bumpy bench. Come on, come on. Please up your door. No, mom said I can't. So that was pretty much exactly the, the kind of spirit that 
Janssen felt and he was like as if he wouldn't want to trade with us we've got like we've like Dutch East Indies it's a tra- it's basically like a, a merchant conglomerate mm. that specializes in trading and he was like why would you not want to trade the Indonesians want to come on like surely you would want to trade with us as well and they've just got no interest in trading with the Europeans the indigenous oral tradition is that Janssen's men rocked up and were extremely violent towards them and that they raped their women Mm. That is quite common in kind of 1500s to 1800s colonial exploration. There there is a fair amount of rape that does come with it because they've got this attitude of like, these are not documented people. We're in a foreign territory. We technically are under the law of the crown, but, you know, what are they going to do? There's no way they can kind of enforce this or police this or anything like it. Um, And it, it is much more common in those overseas territories when compared back to Europe. Yeah. And so probably both accounts are true. There's contradictory elements, both of it. There's probably like the indigenous Wikmungan people would have certainly responded with violence, but it's probably not likely that they led with violence. Mm. And it's also not likely that the Wikmungan people were like, yeah, come on in doc, just make yourself at home here. Of course, there would have been an element of territoriality about it. So Janssen basically two of his, I think two of his men were killed and they're like, okay, we've got to get out of here. Uh, and he sails north and back out to the Dutch East Indies. He goes home to New Holland and, or sorry, to Holland and reports on his finding. And basically is like, yeah, we found this weird part of New Guinea where people like that, the, the indigenous people killed two of our own. And it's kind of this big, this big story, but it's not huge because they still think they're in New Guinea. Mm. What happens a couple months later, a guy called Luis de Torres. I just like the way you pronounce <laughs> Louis van de Torres. <laughs> <laughs> He's Spanish. I see. And he sails in between New Guinea and Australia and he's like, hold up. This is not like, this This is a strait. This is not a bay. Interestingly, Louis van de Torres never makes contact with Australia. So he's still unaware about the existence of Australia. But he's, he knows that New Guinea cuts off a lot further north than what Janssen thought it did. Yeah. And so he sails through the strait, completely missed the existence of Australia. And so word gets back that Lua Feta Torres has sailed through the Torres Strait. And Janssen's like, that's impossible. Because oh, so is that how it gets its name? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's got nothing. Torres Strait Islander people didn't name it. Like, it's not named after them or anything. That's so interesting that like the term Torres Strait Islander reflecting indigenous people is just named after a Spanish European. Yeah, yeah, not even like not from a country that had no colonial interest in Australia. Yeah. It's after a Spanish dude. Yeah, right. Yeah. The more you know. Have I told you about the time that I thought Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander meant Indigenous or Torres Strait Islander and then everyone (laughs) who wasn't Indigenous was Torres Strait Islander and I ticked Torres Strait Islander. (laughs) I think you're not the first person to do that. I think I've heard other stories. (laughs) Well, I'm certainly not Aboriginal, so that must mean I'm I'm Torres Strait Islander. Um, Yeah, a bit of of an embarrassing moment when in year four we did learn about the Torres Strait and I realised that I've done a a very big silly. Um, But basically... He sails through the Torres Strait and so Europe's like, geez, Janssen was wrong. Janssen, whatever, wherever Janssen was, he was not in New Guinea. And word starts to kind of spread across Europe that, that there is this great southern landmass. Mm. And again, people are like, well, this is Java La Grande. 
this could this is probably if it's not New Guinea, it's probably the island that the Indonesians were talking about that was thirteen hundred miles south of Java Major. And so, how long ago was the Java La Grande discussion? Marco Polo brought back word about Java La Grande at the end of the twelve hundreds. Right. So this is hundreds of years, then they yes. come back and be like, "Oh boy, Marco was right." Yeah, yeah, literally. And it would have been a really exciting time to live. Yeah. Like, yeah whole new world opening up to you i guess we're kind of in that moment with the ufo stuff right now but conversation for another day <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so basically after so Janssen goes in 1606 he gets out of there he's like whoa yeah that was don't want to go back there he does make another voyage and does actually chart more of the coastline but it is relatively silent on the australia front until 1616 mm. when our boy dirk hartog the boy <laughs> i cannot believe like he is such a minor player in this story <laughs> and yeah, yeah true he's not even the most crucial dutch guy by the sounds of things no 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 Janssen was far more oh, he's, he's third there's another guy that's more important than than him as well as Janssen. anyway dirk hartog he has no intention of ending up in Australia. Mm. So he's trying to get to Java and trying to get to Indonesia. Yep. And he's sailing through the South of Africa. So rather than go through the Suez Canal, he's gone around the Cape of Good Hope. While he goes around the Cape of Good Hope at the bottom of South Africa, he loses contact with his other ship. And basically he's like, in an attempt to catch up with that ship, I'm going to go really far south to where the winds are really strong. It's called the Roaring Forties. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's significantly south of South Africa. And that will give us some extra speed and I can catch up to the other crew. But because he's gone so far south, that's a very risky move. And the wind has actually blown him to the western coast of Australia rather than to Java. Yeah. And so he ends up on the western coast of Australia. He kind of leaves like a little plate to be like, yeah, the Dutch were here. And he just kind of looks at it. He's like, yeah, it's all right. I'll, I'll pass and I'll go somewhere else. And he kind of charts a lot of the northwestern coast of Australia but basically, just yeah. So where is he? Does he is he like up past like Broome and stuff like that? Is that he how? ends up past Broome, but he's probably halfway between Perth and Broome. I'm um, a yeah, Western okay. Australian geography. For me, I'm just like, yeah, Perth, yeah. <laughs> Fremantle, <laughs> Margaret River, because my friend went on a honeymoon there, <laughs> and that's pretty much. Sorry to all our WA viewers, we do love you, listeners. I should mm. say. Oh, I love WA. Yeah. Yeah, you went earlier this year. Yeah, yeah, but we only went south. We didn't didn't go to the Dirk Hartog Memorial. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps a major oversight on our part. <laughs> Again, more Patreon dollars. We'll do a pilgrimage to, <laughs> to pay homage to our boy. Um, so yeah, Dirk Hartog basically again decides pass, not for me, and it's all pretty silent until the 1630s. So that's two decades after Dirk Hartog. Mm. The Dutch attempt to do a voyage charting the coastline of Australia, but bad weather prevents them. That was until 1642 when they get another bite at the cherry. This one is led by Abel Tasman. Mm. And so Tasman, what he does, so he starts off in, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he starts off in the Dutch East Indies again. He actually sails as far west as Mauritius. That's a little bit east of Madagascar. Okay. Yeah. So he sails as far west as Mauritius. And then does a Yui and comes back along the southern coast of Australia. So he goes beneath WA and starts sailing through like the mm. waters just past like the Great Australian Bight and that sort of thing. He ends up and he lands at Tasmania. Of course, it's not called Tasmania at the time. Mm. Looks around and actually this is pretty pretty good farmland because it's a lot more temperate and a lot less tropical and more similar to European farmland. Yeah. 
And she was like, this, is, this isn't bad. This, I don't know why Dirk Hartog was dishing on Australia. <laughs> he calls it Van Diemen's Land after the governor of the Dutch East Indies. And he leaves Van Diemen's Land and he sails further east. What might he find if he sails further east? Of Tasmania? Yeah. New Zealand? New Zealand. First European contact with New Zealand. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, right. So... Again, this is now this is a really interesting encounter. So he rocks up in a bay that would be called Murderer's Bay. On the, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's just on the, on the northwest side of the South Island, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah. So he rocks up at a bay that would be called Murderer's Bay. The Maori tribe that was there. Now, pardon the pronunciation. I'm going to give it a go. It was called the Natitumatako Kiri. That was very good. Uh, great pronunciation. I had to, I stuffed it up about 10 times when I recorded the video <laughs> earlier this week. Basically, a very similar encounter to Jansen's encounter with the Wickmungan in that Tasman rocks up and again, by all accounts, they were violent to the Maoris. The Maori account, well, that's what Maori account is. The Dutch account is that they were barbarians that kind of killed out guys. Mm. What we know did happen. At some point, Tasman ordered cannon fire on the Maoris. Yeah, okay. And just imagine for a minute, like, fire out. What a, again, like a UFO is effectively firing space lasers at you. Yeah, yeah, wow. Um, so that's incredible. It's it's like it's like why the north North Central Island will always occupy. I think I think I think that North Central Island probably at least once a week. Wait, North Central Island. That you know that the island off of um off of India in the Bay of Bengal where the American missionary was killed about four or five years ago. So basically it's one of the last uncontacted areas in the world. Yeah. Um, It's an island. So unlike the Amazon where other uncontacted tribes might be, it's literally gated on a small island blocked by water. Mm. The British rocked up in like the 1700s, 1800s, sometime around there, I think, and killed, kidnapped a couple of them, but they all died from smallpox. And that is all that story is obviously being passed down in the oral tradition of North Central Island. Yeah. And so anyone rocks up, they're like, you get out of here right now, we'll kill you. Yeah. And so basically a missionary rocked up five years ago, they killed him. Um, during the 2004 tsunami, the helicopters that were flying over to make sure that they were okay, they're like just throwing stuff, firing stuff. Like they do not have fire. So the only time they're able to use fire is when lightning strikes a tree. So we're talking about it's like a 40,000-year-old 40, society mm. um, that lives as though it was 40,000 BC. So it, it's yeah. incredible. And they, they still exist today. And probably the reason why the Indian government forbids contact, it's probably got nothing to do with them dying from smallpox. The theory is that India's doing nuclear testing nearby and doesn't want anyone to know about it. That's, that's the exciting <laughs> theory. So imagine just trying to explain that to people from North Central Island that your entire existence is because and like another planet is doing space laser testing nearby. Like, it's <laughs> mind-blowing. And so, yeah, like, imagine I just... I Because I, we live near Botany Bay and we will come to Botany Bay next podcast, but just the, like, what on... Like, there's the thoughts that would have been going through these Indigenous oh, yeah. people's minds yeah. when just this foreign ship rocks up with people that are a different skin colour to what you've ever seen before. Um, yeah, mind-blowing. So, anyway, they Abel's husband rocks up at Murderer's Bay... And basically tries to enter New Zealand. Maoris more or less kick him out. And they, so when the cannon is fired at the Maoris, they kill a couple of Tasman's men. And 
basically Tasman gets out of there. He's like, same thing as Yanzen in Northern Australia. We need to get out of there. He calls it Murderer's Bay and he sails north and he goes to then Fiji and Tonga and basically through a lot of Melanesia and Polynesia. And those places had been contacted at this point? No. Oh, okay. So he's just he's just on a tear. He's just yeah. finding, finding all these islands. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. As he's fleeing from the from from New Zealand. Yeah. And so basically it's really interesting because the account that's given to the Europeans about New Zealand is don't mess with the Maoris. Yeah. Whereas the account that's given to the Europeans about the indigenous is that these guys are barbarians. And there is a difference there. Indigenous in, Australians. Indigenous Australians. Yeah, yeah. In that obviously like Western technology would enable them to be triumphant. But you've also got to remember that if a war breaks out, you've got to get ammo to the other side of the world. Mm. That's not like you only have very finite ammo with like muskets and that sort of thing. So basically like word gets back that you don't mess with the Maoris whatsoever. That becomes important later down the track when the Brits rock up in New Zealand. Now it's all quiet on that front for Pharaoh Arthur. After Abel Tasman's kind of journey, he's like, yeah, again, pass. Yeah. He goes to the Dutch East Indies or the Dutch East India company. And he's like, look, Australia's kind of a flop. It's just a giant <laughs> barren wilderness effectively. And Tasmania is so far South. That it's not worth trying to get people to. So he's like, yeah. you know what? At the end of the day, we just saw a lot of coastline. It's very hot. Doesn't seem particularly agricultural. And they said, pass on Australia. Again, it would all be silent on that front for about a hundred years. So we go to the end of the 1600s. There's nothing, no interest in Australia whatsoever. Mm. We go to the 1700s for the first half of the 1700s, uh, Britain's attention and France's attention and Spain's attention is entirely on the Americas. Yeah. So that occupies all their attention there. So there's very limited attention paid towards Australia. In 1768, it starts to resurface again. There's a guy called Alexander Dalrymple who was a big believer in Terra Australis. Now, by this point in history, the sciences have been flourishing for a fair while now. And we're in the, yeah, obviously early Enlightenment era and people were starting to deride the idea of Terra Australis. Like, you dummies believe in backward science and that sort of stuff. Mm. Dalrymple was a true believer and he wasn't to be deterred by the haters. Mm. Yeah, good. And so basically, Dalrymple was a huge advocate of Terra Australis. He lobbied the Royal Society, which was basically kind of like the government body for the sciences, their version of the CSIRO, I guess. Mm. And he goes, I really need to go to the Pacific to observe the transit of Venus. And we get a way better view of Venus if we're on the other side of the world. And they're like, yeah, that's cool. We're learning a lot about other planets right now and this is this is a really good venture we'll let you go he's like sweet he's not going for the transit of venus though you sly dog he's going to find terra australis (laughs) bit of a complication there darren was a scientist and they're like bro you cannot lead this expedition you need someone who can actually like if you if you're gonna go and we're gonna have safe passage through the seas we need someone with a navy background Surely our boy doesn't enter, does he? This is the entering of Captain James Cook. Wow. Born in Middlesbrough. Damn. Nice. He he has an interesting background in the sense that he grew up, uh, I believe, to a uh, son of a labourer 
and mm-hmm. he like did his kind he earned his stripes in the docks. Yeah. And in the docks, he heard all these stories from fishermen about fishermen going to all these different lands going fishing. And that just completely captured his imagination. Mm. He was like, well, there is, there is a whole world out there that I want to go see. And Captain Cook is enlisted and 1768, they're like commissioned it all good. 1769 gets sent off to go to the other side of the world to observe the transit of Venus. Mm. Allegedly. Allegedly. And that is where we'll pick up the story next week. Oh my gosh. As we look at Britain's first contact with Australia and as the story gets even better. So we've just done, the, effectively, we've just done the pre-reading for year t- year three. If you're in year three and you're listening to this, you are now ready to listen to your teacher talk about Captain Cook. Yeah. He's now yeah. the requisite context. Oh boy. That was a thriller. I feel like I've learned a lot. My, uh, obviously the, the Dirk Hartog propaganda machine that is, <laughs> that is year three history has been totally unwound in my mind and i don't get it because we live very close to where our school was probably like the second third closest school to where captain cook disembarked mm. in the sense of what Cornell and cronulla south and cronulla public would be the only ones that beat it yeah so we've got a huge local claim to fame that is not dirk Hartog, <laughs> who literally could not be further away yeah i can't yeah. geographically we are probably as far away from dirk Hartog as anyone is in australia yeah, maybe I don't. Know, maybe some Queenslanders might pip us, um, and that's who our school just really chooses to hone in on. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. It could be this, like, could be some sort of like Mandela effect going on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know how I've latched onto Dirk so much. But, um, yeah, let us know in the comments if you also <laughs> like Dirk Hartog. Um, I, I do have one more Dirk Hartog story. So my year eight English book that we read in English was a story about their, like this teenager finding Dirk Hartog's plate and it had right. and it had magical powers and like it was like <laughs> it was like cursed or whatever. Um so I didn't actually read the book. But that's, oh, that's a shame. It sounds like a thriller. Yeah and I, I'm like man I actually kinda wish I did. Like that sounds like a, a pretty fun book. I just like I was just classic in like we read Brave New World in year ten. Yeah. And I'm like What's he even talking about? This is so <laughs> dumb. Like, literally one of the, the best thinkers of the 20th century, Aldous Huxley. And year 10 me is like, oh, they're talking about having sex. Oh, what are you doing? Oh, what the heck? Oh, this is oh, this is gross, Miss. This is gross. Um, so I actually really want to read that book now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, part two coming next week. Oh, hi. Part two cannot come quickly enough. 